Hi, I'm Angela O'Keefe, and this is the Right Way podcast. Yes, thank you for that introduction, uh, Angela O'Keefe, and welcome to the program, everyone. And as I, your host, Samuel James Elliott of the Right Way podcast, person you just heard from then is my guest today. I'm trialing this new intro uh, whereby the guest speaks and introduces themselves. So I think it's going swimmingly well. Having not heard it, I'm still doing the intro of the actual recording itself. But uh, yes, that was Angela O'Keefe. I had a, a, the absolute immense good fortune of speaking to her a little bit earlier today, talking about Night Blue, which is her debut published novel, not her first novel, but debut published novel, Night Blue. And I must tell you that I really enjoyed this one, listeners. It was uh, so unique in terms of, and obviously, as you're going to find out from obviously us going into to detail there about, uh, about the writing of it, but basically Dark Blue uh, is about... Jackson Pollock's, well, not just about Jackson Pollock's Blue Poles, it is Jackson Pollock's Blue Poles. It is the narrator for a large portion of the story. Um, again, that, that in itself, by virtue of that alone, just that premise and the character and the narrator being this, uh, you know, seemingly inanimate object of a painting, yet with its own life and sentient and awareness of its surroundings, is incredibly original and something that I thought certainly from at least from a premise perspective would have been daunting to the point of uh, almost impossible to write. But Angela O'Keefe did that not only deftly, but incredibly well. And I had a tremendous good time speaking to her about that. So I want you all to give a big digital round of applause to Angela O'Keefe talking to me about her novel, Night Blue. Angela O'Keefe, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm real good. Um, look, I really enjoyed your gem of a novel and I wanted to kind of give you a little bit of a context first and foremost before we get into the nitty gritty of the actual conversation. Uh, I, as a child, uh, well, as a, as a youngish child slash becoming young man, used to have a giant poster of Blue Poles in my room. Like, it wasn't wow. obviously to scale, it was a small yeah. one that I obviously purchased when I, my parents had purchased for me when I, when I went and uh, saw saw blue poles in the flesh as a, as a young young lad. But um, that was kind of um, what sort of served as me wanting to, to jump with both hands and uh, speak to you about this absolute uh, little gem of a novel because first and foremost, you've probably listened to a couple of episodes of the podcast. You know how it's, uh, I normally ask where you got your idea from and stuff like that, but it's it's immediately apparent where you did because it's the subject matter itself. It's blue poles. But I wanted to know the thought process about that because you've gone from writing short stories to writing this novel and it's a, it's a huge undertaking because it's such a unique, daringly original and imaginative work. Yeah, it's not even anthropomorphic animals or anything because it's a, it's a painting. It's the soul of a painting that's talking. So tell me a little bit about that sort of process first and foremost. Okay, so I was writing novels before this, but none that actually got published. Okay. So I had some kind of a, an apprenticeship, if you like. Um, and I have always been interested in point of view and, and sort of different points of view. Um, so as far as the painting goes, you know, I was a young woman, teenager, when Whitlam was sacked. I was 11 when Blue Poles was purchased. So I kind of do, I do remember that period. And it just was something that sat there. I didn't really think much about it over the years. But I just, I think it was when I read The Museum of Modern Love and I loved that narrator and it was the, it's the artist's muse that's the narrator. And I had been sort of toying with this story that had blue poles in it you know people talking about blue poles blue poles wasn't necessarily the center but after I read that book I just woke up one morning and thought what if the painting speaks and that was it you know I just gave it a go I actually went straight to the computer and wrote the first paragraphs uh, and and I also was aware that Pollock had said the painting has a life of its own so was there was that bit for me as well it was just a, a kind of an interesting way to go into it it's interesting that you mentioned that just sort of flowed like that because I wanted to know the sort of follow-up question to that because obviously and I did touch on it uh just a second ago but in terms of it's not an anthropomorphic uh creature you know we've seen a couple of the closest I was thinking of when I was reading it the closest sort of stories was like Chris Flynn's mammoth 
and you know even more Jim Mackay's animals of that country but obviously those are those are animals that are speaking and and acting in those whereas this are seemingly and what we'll get into in a sec but this inanimate object which is a painting I wanted to know with you if there was any sort of uh way in which it sort of hindered the way in which you saw it because obviously a painting can't get up and walk around as it turns out through the execution of your writing obviously that it's it's everywhere it's pressing and it can see everything but I wanted to know when you first started writing it if that was something that you had at the forefront of your mind and that kind of made it difficult or not really it make it made it very exciting really because it was a challenge I mean it wasn't like I got up and the first lines came and then it all came you know mm. there were there these sort of you know, I'd stop and I'd think, shikes, now what does a painting, how does a painting sort of negotiate these sorts of feelings or this this life event, you know? And I think there was, a, I kept going back to the night it started. It mm. seemed to me, and I think that the no, novel sort of is, is structured that way too, where the painting itself keeps going back to that night. It's It's everything seems to stem from the creation. And so I kept going back and I just remember I'd sort of picture Pollock walking around and around this painting and sort of, you know, wondering and, and looking at it and, and sort of communicating with it really and trying to get the, the next sort of bit. Um, so that's what I did and I think I felt there was a turning point when I realised that the painting didn't have judgement because I was always aware, look, I don't want this to just be like a person. Mm. It sort of is, of course, but it's also a bit more or a bit beyond because uh, it doesn't, you know, without giving too much away, it doesn't judge its maker mm. you know it doesn't really have the ability to do that I think that what I what, what I wondered as well and I saw like a, the, the narrative the thread of the narrative sort of did continue that quite well throughout was uh this sort of uh symbiotic relationship of life giving the painter giving life to the painting the painter the painting giving life to the painter and uh there was one one section early on don't want to go into it too much, but uh, Blue Poles talks about how uh, he gifted memories to 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 Blue Poles. So it was it was you know thinking back to uh, Pollock's childhood, you know, in Arizona and all this sort of thing. And I wondered that was a really cool concept as well. And I wondered if that was also something that you that you you wanted to explore was about uh, the artist giving as much of their life as the painting itself or the creation receives and gives back in turn. Yes, that was definitely something I wanted to explore and it it came from reading about abstract expressionism and how the, the paintings are made through gesture hmm. and, and sort of like a, a um, I mean, that you know, Pollock did plan what he was doing. It's not like it was all random, but there is this sense of, the un reaching out into the unknown through the gesture and that his life was, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think he was asked whether he drew inspiration from nature and he just said, I am nature. And so there's this sense that he's in the painting somehow, you know, I, I yeah. I don't know how else to talk about that, but um, I think the biography I read too talked about that where, uh, you know, it's it's not a literal sort of, you know, it's not figurative, of course, but that somehow the life goes into the painting because it's such a, a, a natural, you know, it's the natural gesture that mm. you're getting, the natural movement from the body. And it's not, you know, it's not up on the wall. It's on the floor and you're walking around it. That's, that's how Pollock painted it. We could, you, you kind of just uh, touched on briefly and I think it segues nicely into what I wanted to ask next. With uh, Pollock as a, so Pollock is obviously uh, essential and innately tied to Blue Poles, but I feel like you, 
you never wanted him to be at the front and centre of the story. Obviously, it's Blue Pole's story, this creation, his creation is, the, is, you know, even though they're intrinsically bound together. But what I also wanted to know is I wanted to know, because I, I did see you mentioned in the acknowledgements, you thanked two books, um, both which I'm keen to check out. Um, I wanted to know if you, if, you, if you opted early on to not drown in too much research, because that's kind of what, uh, what one of the pitfalls that can happen with any sort of historical fiction work or be it anything that's you know steeped in history and I wanted to know if you opted to do some as in to have some obviously basis for for what my Pollock's life might have been as well as what happened with Blue Poles and its journey to ultimately end up in Canberra but not too much you didn't want it to inform your story or your take uh too much is it is that kind of how it went that is true Sam I actually you know that's spot on mm. I I mean I didn't watch the film about Pollock purposely Mm. because I just didn't want to get sort of too much into that. I did read a a biography of him and, you know, I did research but I did research as I went along. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to to New York. I went to the the barn where Blue Pole started. Oh, did you? Oh. I did and I, I kind of didn't know, I mean, I didn't even have a list of questions to ask the, the director. Um, I'm not sure what she thought of me. I just wanted to stand in that room mm. and see what came, really. And towards the end of the book, there's a there's a scene where there's a deer. Well, there's a deer in a couple of scenes mm. at the end of the book, and I saw that deer. Oh, so did you? Okay. There were things, yeah, there were things that happened that day, and, and there's, I mean, the floor of the barn is very important as well, again, mm. without giving too much away, but that was, um, I didn't know when I walked into that barn and saw that floor where there were remnants of Pollock's paintings and and particularly blue poles, or my interest was in blue poles particularly. Um, I didn't know that what I was seeing would how it would be in the book or even if it would be. So it was very much, the research was very much intuitive and I just followed what sparked for mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. you know, and there were bits that had to be filled in mm-hmm. and that I stumbled on, luckily, you know, the few things that I stumbled on towards the end that I was like, thank you, <laughs> um, because they really worked in the story. Um yeah, does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, it does. I, I yeah, I, I saw that. I mean, I knew that. I, I felt that there was. I could see that it would have been something that maybe just happened organically in terms of researching stuff when you sort of needed to, but not going, uh, not allowing yourself to drown in it, kind of thing. It's yes, cool. and it's- I think the painting is was front. I mean, the painting was the character. Yeah, and you know, I was imagining a new character, really. Because, mm. I mean, the painting exists, but this character that I was writing was my, what I imagined the painting to be. So uh, that was the centre and that mm. painting life and, you know, through the history that is kind of, you know, that scaffolding that's there, the facts that are there, I wanted to see how, if I could sort of just travel with it. Yeah, I'm with uh, you. And then eventually it meets Alyssa and then you get into the heart of the book then. Yeah, look, I'm with you. Um, I can totally see. Yeah, you wanted you wanted some little bit of that background, maybe to to give some substance, but you never wanted it to kind of detract from your own sort of vision there. So I can totally get behind that. I'm glad you choose to do that because I also think as well, like that's the there's always the you know the kind of there's always the risk then of getting this manuscript that just gets out of control, maybe, and it would just be this bloated mess where you kept it to this pretty pretty lean. Like I've read it twice in a couple of days, type thing of the of the story, but it's because you had your your clear vision you didn't let yourself get bogged down by just the research which would have been fascinating because there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about female artists obviously Mm -hmm. but um yeah so it's interesting but you also kind of just mentioned as well so what I want to talk about just quickly before we kind of get stuck into the other the other stuff is so we've mentioned the perspective obviously of the blue poles but it's not the only perspective and you did touch on Alyssa there as well and mm. I liked I liked the way that that sort of um, they complemented one another and it picked up the thread of the narrative. But I was interested as well because you could have you could have you could have gone the entire way from entirely from the, the blue poles 
perspective or you could have gone the entire way from Alyssa's perspective and maybe they might have even been easier but you've obviously clearly um early on made a decision to to have the have the two and that sort of contrast so what was the decision there Angela how did that go away did you find that to be liberating or was that made it more difficult uh well it probably made it more challenging for sure Mm. but it also it, it was I mean the whole act of writing it was driven by what what feels exciting really mm-hmm. and what feels, you know, I mean it felt risky to do that, uh, to change narrators and so on, but it was also just this what I wanted to explore really because in the Alyssa part we have and, and also in the Blue Poles part really, it's really the story of a story. You know, we're exploring how does a story come into being? What draws a story along, you know? And there's these two characters that need to come together to form the story. One can't really form it without the other. This particular story, not the story of Blue Poles. You know, I I wasn't saying, you know, I've never said that this is the definitive story of Blue Poles. Mm -hmm. one little stroke in that whole painting, you know, it's one little kind of twirl there um, that is this little unique story of of the painting, uh, you know, of a viewer and the painting sort of meeting and that viewer happens to be a writer. So that's what inspired, that's what really I feel is the heart of the where the heart of the book comes from. If I'd just gone on with Blue Poles, it would have been, oh, yes, and then, you know, just just the, his, the historical kind of signposts along mm. the way, which I wasn't, I was interested in kind of exploring those ideas about creation and, and a, a story and, you know, there's other things besides women in art, um, who gets overlooked, that kind of thing. Okay, you've touched on a lot of things that I kind of want to delve into. Let's talk about women in art briefly because, yeah, I can see that you, and like you, you mentioned, you, you wanted to kind of keep it focused on this this um, very kind of almost ineffable sort of creation, what, what creates, what what is life-giving and what, you know, what can sustain us and both the artists. And there's a few different quotes that I've written down here, which I really kind of want to get into as well. But I did want to briefly talk about the, um, the how, how underrepresented or overlooked women and artists are particularly within the annals or history like that so there was obviously we mentioned Lee Krasner and Helen Frankenfaller I wanted you to talk a little bit about those well because and I also must say in this regard and I kind of liked it it, it um, sort of really delightfully reminded me of uh, the artist portrait by Julie Keys lovely Julie Keys have you read that at all oh you must you must she's a very very yeah, good human and very very good writer um yeah yeah the artist portrait I'll, I'll send the artist- you portrait the artist portrait yeah yeah i'll uh, i'll i'll send that to you in an email or some other stuff but um yeah tell me a little bit about that because i i can see that you obviously made this you, you didn't want to just delve into the history of it yet i feel like this did snag your interest in wanting to explore it at least at least in some way without kind of uh, kind of bogging down with the overall sort of pacing of the narrative mm. yeah well that wasn't something that i initially was all that interested in, to be mm. honest. I mean, it was, I mean, I'm interested in that, but it's not, it wasn't there really from the start. It, it became, as I read the biography of, of Pollock, Krasner was there and mm. there was just this sense, wow, she put up with a lot, you mm. know, and she sort of put, well, in that, in that, the story went in that biography that she sort of put her work to the side to support her husband. And in a sense, I think, she, you know, she probably did in some ways, but she still kept painting. Hmm. She's kind of a bit invisible. I mean, there's been a bit, there's been a, an exhibition recently in, uh, in London a couple of years ago now called Hot. Is it hiding in plain sight or oh actually maybe that's another one that's in the States right now. But you know, there was this sense that she's she's been there all the time and yeah. she's she was hidden. 
Um, and she is a great quote of hers that I read recently that says, I painted before Pollock, during Pollock, after Pollock, you know, <laughs> but that's not particularly the way she's seen. So I then read a book by Mary Gabriel called, which is just behind me here, called Night Street Women. Yep, and yep, that's, that's one you mentioned. Yeah, about Lee Krasner, um, Helen Frankenthaler and a few others and uh, abstract expressionists. And <clears throat> that was fantastic. And that, you know, I really kind of got more of an idea of what Lee's life might have been like. And I just found it fascinating and I just wanted to sort of put that in there in some way. It's almost as if I, I wanted to do it for, <laughs> you know, I just... Um, I just wanted to hold her up to the light and have a little look at her as well mm. as, as Pollock, although those characters never, you know, they're just in there. They're not main characters. I know the blurb talks about them almost as if they are, but they're, they're you know, as you say, it's not really about them. They're just kind of, they're just characters that Alyssa's interested in and Blue Poles is interested in. Mm -hmm. I'm the, was, you know she's there as well she's she's interesting she is interesting I, I i knew nothing about her admittedly and same with the i was pretty ashamed with lee Presley. i mean i was war versed of jackson pollock because yeah i love blue poles and stuff mm -hmm. like that and i have i have seen the ed harris movie which i really recommend maybe now that you're kind of uh you're not writing yeah, about it anymore you can give it a squeeze because it's a good one but um yeah, I just I found that the main thing that you mentioned as well um, about um, Lee Krasner continuing to use that barn for like thirty years to do her own work and stuff, and I like that just floored me in terms of um, not knowing kind of about that. So yeah, I mean it was never like it was just something that I wanted to talk to you about Angela, just purely because I could see that it wasn't something that you wanted to have a crux or focus on, but it was just something that might have intrigued you somewhat. And you wanted to, like you mentioned, with Lee bringing her into the light there a little bit, I guess. Look, um, I wanted to talk about some quotes because I think that they kind of, uh, a lot of them kind of encapsulate uh, in the best, deftest way possible some of the stuff in which, or some of the themes in which you, you want to explore. So first and foremost, a painting lives only in ways outside of itself. I was like, like, so what to you is that sort of the, the life-givingness that you kind of talked about there, where it's it's the way in which a painting, if, it, if a painting has had life given to it by a painter, then is it by virtue of being who it is or what it is and the spectators and the endless sort of droves that come to visit it, is that, is that how it, it lives as compared to kind of when the days when it was kept in the dusty sort of fishwick warehouse? Well, that quote, to, my memory of that line goes to some, a painting lives only in ways outside of itself. And I think that came, well, I know that came uh, in the scene in Washington be, just before Blue Pulse comes to Australia. He's taken to Australia. So that's referring, or I wanted it to refer, I meant it to be referring to the men in the room who were only interested in getting that signature from Lee Krasner to say how Pollock painted it on his own, this is an authentic painting worth 1.3 million bucks, you mm. know. Mm. So to some, a painting only lives in ways outside of itself, meaning in cash, mm. you know, in, in, in monetary value. They didn't even look at you know, they barely looked at the painting, those guys. They weren't actually interested in interacting with the painting. They wanted to interact with the piece of paper that said how much it was worth and that it was authentic. So that's what I was referring to there. Do you think that also kind of then leads to sort of the, the reaction that uh, it got when it, was, um, when it was sort of screened there or shown there, um, obviously very fiercely divisive with, with, with decisive with Australia of uh, who thought what about it, but it wasn't so much that, and like you make, you make a point of it and quite well, uh, the way in which Blue Pole sort of endures people's opinions, passing opinions as they speak openly in front of it. Some of them saying 
kind of ambivalent about it or indifferent towards it. Others are more, you know, fierce and others still are like, I could have, could have done it for another hospital and stuff like that. So is that also as well? So it's through no fault of the painting itself. It's just public perception. Yes. Well, I think there's always been, you know, the opinion, it seems to me that public opinion sort of did change about blue poles when it started to gain in value. Mm. You know, so again, it's about wow, we've got this painting that was turned out to be a good, good deal after all. You mm. know, and how many people who say that actually kind of, you know, is it that they've their relationship with the actual their interaction with the painting, you know, their emotional interaction, their mental interaction with the painting, you know, as a viewer. Has that changed or is it just that it's it's the money, you know? Mm. And I think that a large part of it is. I mean, that's that's humans, isn't it? But I do think um, I do think people have have, you know, certainly have don't have the shock value that they had before. I mean, we we're used to abstract art now, you know, it's not something that you look at. Well, that many people would look at and say, oh, yeah, I could have done that, you know. I think our way of seeing has changed with time. Perception, yeah, let's, let's, let's keep talking a little bit about perception and I wanted to talk about the painting's perception, Blue Paul's painting perception of, of people because I think it also mentions as well and uh, it says uh, people are what interest a painting. And I'm like, again, this is this is the sort of this is the sort of uh, premise which I'm like, it's like an incredible idea that hasn't been thought of until until you have of what if the painting itself is nourished by the people before it, if that if if we're the subjects that are interested as much as as much as people, and this kind of also all harkens back to how it's sustained itself throughout, and then obviously linking almost in this sort of symbiotic fashion with Alyssa. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, Angela, if that was something that was at the forefront of your mind when it came to writing it, this sort of linkage of binding of a painting to a person, a person to a painting. Yes. Well, that idea sort of came as I went along. Mm. Um, you know, these, I mean, that's sort of what kept, these sorts of moments kept me going because it was like, oh, right, the painting feels this, you know. Mm. Um, and, of course, you know, a, I love that idea when it came to me. I thought, oh, that, that's lovely, you know, that a work of art would be wanting wanting interaction, you know, would be wanting that human interaction, engagement, uh, because why else, you know? I mean, I'd been partly, you know, it's some of it's personal and, and I'm only just realising this now that, you know, I'd been writing kind of hidden in a way all those years, you know. Uh, I'm not not a beginner writer. It's my mm. first novel, but I'm not a beginner. And so I was writing all those years and, you know, then you'd finish and, and it wouldn't sort of be published and, you know, you'd sort of think about those stories or those books that were sort of, you know, you know, computers or whatever. <laughs> I never keep hard copies of them anywhere. But um, you know, what what what's what's the life of art when it's not seen or not, you know, not sort of taken in by people, not thought about, not not um, you know, a person takes in a piece of art and then they go away and they have all these feelings about it, and those feelings kind of weave into their the events in their life, that's that's the sort of thing I was getting at. I mean, I think that, that it's a beautiful way to look at how we interact with art but also how art interacts with us, basically. Absolutely. And, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of this, you, I feel that the way in which you look upon art at one point in your life will change uh, when you look upon it later in life. I and mean, it certainly happens for Alyssa. It happens with um, the unnamed and I'm wondering potentially fictional uh, daughter of the arts dealer as well, without any going into any more details slash spoiling it. And uh, yeah, that was, no, that was another thing that I wondered if that's, if that was intriguing you and that's what you wanted to kind of convey as well is that how, how our perception changes as true for this sort of seemingly immortal 
main character or the narrator is, is blue poles as well. And uh, it's it's perception changing. Is that something that also intrigued you and you wanted to sort of it convey? Did. It was like, as I wrote, I realised, yes, works of art change because the perception, you know, the way they're received changes, mm. the way they're seen changes. And so the, the work itself changes, even though, of course, it's still the same Physically, it's still the same. You know, it might sort of age a little bit and have to be cleaned and whatever, but it's actually not the same because the way we see it and experience it has changed. So, therefore, the art, the life of the art has changed. That was the sort of the thing that I found really exciting to explore. Art is changing as well. And there was another uh, mention as well. And I was, first of all, just before as well, Angela, when, you, when I quoted that um, incorrectly, I paraphrased it, but the, the thing, and you, you recalled it straight away, my hat goes off to you for being able to do that because I, I certainly can't recall my works as, as well as that. But you mentioned a little bit later in the novel, uh, divide what you, divide what, and I'm hoping I'm not paraphrasing this because I tried to write this down verbatim, but divide what you live from the act of creating. So I wanted you to talk. Does that does that quote first of all ring true? Is that is that the have I said that correctly? Um, I don't remember that one to be honest. Yeah, oh, God, uh, I should have written down the page. No, I should have written um, down the page. I think that oh yeah, divide what divide what you live from the act of creating. I think that might be something, I don't know if they're the exact words, but I think that's something in Alyssa's part probably Mm. Mm. about uh, you know, she's she's a little bit sort of she she doesn't like blue poles because she's not liking Pollock. Mm. Mm. She doesn't like what Pollock stands for. There's lots of reasons why she doesn't like, well, you know, a number of reasons why she doesn't like Pollock. And so there was this, this idea she's, she's grappling with, with is how do you divide, you know, the, the life of the artist from the art, basically. Is mm. that sort of what yeah. you're meaning? I think yeah, it is. I think it is. That's very essential to her story. Mm. And, and, you know, I mean, she, she ends up going to, the barn on Long mm. Island. Hopefully, that's not giving too much away. But um, yeah, something did, happened there. Did you have to wear the slippers when you went there? Were those a thing? Yes, that I actually, did. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All, that's mm. all right. All right. Look. So, so, what? Also, tell me a little bit more. And I'm I'm pretty sure this one this is the last quote that I'm going to quote you. It better be right. <laughs> so. A story is because this one blew my mind, and I'm pretty sure it's right, and I'm pretty sure it's like at the end. Yeah, it's oh, like blue poles. Okay, a story is no more than an invitation. Okay, so that's that isn't the direct quote, but it's oh maybe it is. Um, but yes, this story is yeah it's. This story is no more than an invitation. I think that's how it goes. Mm. Um, yeah, well, that comes quite late in the book. Yeah. And so you just wanted me to say something about the idea of that. So what I reckon and what I wanted you to, so I wanted to run this theory past you and I wanted to see if it was, if it was kind of encapsulated if in that, if I was on the right thing or completely off what you were, what you were saying. But in that a so we've talked about engage engaging and how a painting engages the subject, a subject engages the painting, or person engages the painting, vice versa. And throughout there was moments where Blue Poles was like, I couldn't feel that. I didn't, I didn't, I picked up on those memories, i.e. Alyssa with the rock being saved on the rock and the hair. And then there was other times when Blue Poles or Alyssa was like, I didn't feel that memory, or that was denied me. And I was wondering, and this is when we're gonna start getting into the real deep existential sort of ineffability of the human condition connected with art is if you're shut off or for whatever reason, and this kind of also touches on, you know, the changing of one's perception, 
does that then mean that you will be denied either the full potential of realising what you yourself can see within a painting or what a painting can potentially see within a person? If you shut off, mm. I guess it, you know, it depends on how you shut off. Mm. But I think what I was saying was that a work of art or, you know, a story, which is a work of art, um, doesn't just sort of exist on its own. It has to connect. It's, I mean, it's the whole book really is about that and keeps coming back to that, hopefully not in a laboured way, you know, in an interesting way. Um, you know, it's, it doesn't exist for itself. Was that the quote? It doesn't, doesn't exist for itself. It lives for... I think it was something like that. I only wrote down the first bit. Connection yeah. anyway. It's not so much for others, but connection with others. But, um, yeah, you've sort of come to the, <laughs> that's sort of the climax. <laughs> well, I hope but, I didn't um, delve into it too anyway, much. Then. We haven't, we haven't, I, I'm ho hopefully people will still want to read it because, um, yeah. Oh, people will definitely want to read it. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, the main thing, and I think that you kind of, uh, it's so interesting because I must tell you, Angela, that my favourite medium, creative medium is reading, yeah, but um, I, do, I do love me some, some fine art and I feel like it's, uh, you, you've blended the two quite well together because it's, it's, it's they're sort of almost um, so disparate and different in terms of what senses that they kind of uh, may stimulate that's kind of actually hard to include both of them, I feel, sometimes within one another. You, you know, like you can't really... I mean, you can show like a, on a painting a bunch of pretty pages and you can talk to some extent about a beautiful painting within a, within a book, but it's, it's, a, it's a challenge and I should pretext that by saying that you've achieved it, but it is a challenge to actually include one medium in the other and to do so and, you know, sort of convey the feeling of looking at that medium within the other medium like that. And I wondered if that was, again, something that also this, this the effect, this sort of corporeal, physical effect that paintings have on us as subjects or what we can see or look upon and if that was something that you had again when you were writing um writing the novel if that was something that you had at the forefront of your mind or if that's something that happened organically with with the writing because it's difficult to sort of i'm getting at i guess is the, the inflaming of the senses like that within the writing of it uh, well, it did happen organically and mm. it was, I mean, I went to see Blue Poles probably five times while I was writing the book mm. and or maybe four, I've seen it a couple of times since. So, uh, and I would go and I would sit like Alyssa sat mm. and on the same bench and uh I would, wouldn't write while I was there and I didn't particularly get ideas while I was there, but I would just look, just sort of sit with the painting and then I'd walk back to the hotel and ideas would come, you know, and I would go, oh, okay, maybe it thinks this or it feels that. And so, I mean, it's what you, you I mean, the imagination is the the important part isn't it I mean you bring your imagination to bear on the experience really mm. of sitting with a with a painting mm. uh, and and I write so you know I'm not you know I don't paint I don't I I actually am not trained in um you know I don't have a master of arts or anything in, in fine arts um so I don't you know, I'm a layperson in that way. And in a way, I felt that, you know, if I ever thought about that too much, uh, I would, <laughs> you know, my layperson status, I would sort of feel that it was too risky. But I also knew that it was kind of a strength for mm. me anyway. I'm not saying it's a strength for anyone. But for me, it was a strength to sort of be coming at it at it from a different angle and to be coming at it as a storyteller, as a mm. writer. You know, this is a book about writing as much as probably more actually than it is about art, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, 
I mean, I don't know if you agree with that, but it's really about how does a story come into being. Mm. Um, and, you know, that, that quote from Pollock, the painting has a life of its own. I just went with it. Mm. It's just okay. The painting has a life of its own, and now, and I'm a I'm a storyteller, and I, you know this is a character, so I just went with that. I wasn't, you know, if I got sort of too in my head about oh God, how am I going to get through this? How am I going? I, you know, who mm. don't who doesn't really know that much about art, how am I going to sort of pull this one off? I just would put that to the side and I think, okay, what am I enjoying about this today mm. and what are the challenges and how am I going to sort of get through them and have a bit of fun hopefully along the way. I think that, yeah, it was all about having fun, but look, I think that the thing I liked about it as well is that it, it didn't, it didn't, you didn't go into the sort of the, the attempting to describe blue poles with that kind of what you're, you're talking about there with that sort of uh artsy verbiage type thing which which naturally would probably will have, would have lost me as well because like you know as a semi-frequent patron of, of art galleries whenever I go around and see people's descriptions I mean they're obviously beautifully written but portentously so like a lot of it goes completely over my head and uh I think that that's yeah to your merit that you, you didn't do that because I think that that might have uh, made it one because then who would have been describing it? Would it have been Alyssa? And then even then that doesn't feel like something her character would do. And two, I think that you kind of uh, fortunately had written it in such a way where you didn't need to because, I mean, Blue Poles is kind of capable of seeing an entire scene from perspective it probably wouldn't be able to, but it never described itself or attempted to. The only thing in which I really sort of um, felt was the the description, was the the, the night blue, the blueness it's the titular blueness, we, we got quite a lot of that, but you didn't try and, you know, spend long slabs of um, of a description. And I think that was to your credit because it just I just don't know if it would have worked and it kind of would have um, been a disservice to what you're sort of obviously you're talking about there as the thing that's captured your attention or interest in the first place, which is the, the life-giving, you know, creative side of things, I feel. I don't know. Mm. Thank you. Yes, well, I mean... If you're writing from your own point of view, for instance, do you do you constantly talk about how you look? Mm. Like, you know, you're more into how you're feeling, how you're experiencing the world. So that's how I wrote about the painting. Yeah, you yeah. Know, from the painting's point of view. Mm. Yeah, no, I totally pick up on that. I'm glad you did because, I like, yeah, I just think that was the best way to kind of go about it. Angela, I wanted to get into talking a little bit about, so Night Blue is your first novel that's been published you mentioned earlier that you've that you've got other works that you've had other other novels and stuff like that which much might not have been published and um i've got my my little media release here which is talking about obviously your short stories and stuff that's appeared in journals with the right way and what i've always wanted to kind of talk about because no two journeys the same for a writer i always want to know what was the biggest uh, if you had one in particular a standout moment if you didn't that's okay but any sort of giant challenges or hurdles that you've kind of uh, had to overcome in order to get to the point where you're now talking to this delightful fellow Samuel Elliott on the Right Way podcast program? Oh, thank you. That's a lovely question. Um, you know, there's a number of mm. moments like that, mm. but I think, you know, I think there was a sense of, you know, it was never really about, oh, why don't, aren't I recognised? Why doesn't the publisher pick, pick up my work? It was more, I mean, you know, I might have thought that at times, but it was more why the bloody hell aren't I writing what I, you know, to the standard that I feel I want to and, and kind of, you know, aspire to? Mm. And so there was this... There was this moment, I had a mentor for a little while, Catherine Heyman, do you know her? I do know Catherine Heyman. I don't know her directly, yeah. but I definitely, I definitely yeah. know of her. So she, just for part of a year, it might have been a whole year, she was my mentor and I was writing this piece, I was writing this story that none of it's in, in Night Blue at all, but um, she just kind of said to me one day, what's your project? She said, this is... You know, she kind of said you, you, you know, she said you can write, but it wasn't grabbing her. Mm. And, and she kind of said that to me. 
she's confront, was confronting it in a good way. And she said, uh, what's your project? And I just sort of looked at her and I couldn't answer it. And I thought the thought was, you mean I can say what I want? <laughs> and that just sounds so stupid. But I remember walking away from that meeting thinking, oh, my God. And, you know, I, it wasn't like I went home and straight away started writing this book, but mm. something shifted in me and I realised I can say what I want. You know, this whole idea about writing what you know and showing, not telling, you know, I just thought, no, I'm breaking through that. I'm writing what I don't have any fucking idea mm -hmm. that I know, you know, and that, uh, I mean, of course, the, you know, Night Blue is something you can, you know, I mean, I sort of am writing what I know in a sense, but I felt that I just broke through something, you know. It was only made of paper. I just kind of broke through this kind of little paper screen, you know, and found myself just outside of 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 writing what I know, mm. you know. It was a reaching, and that was really good. And it wasn't long after that meeting with Catherine, that last meeting, as it turned out, with Catherine, that I did start Night Blue. And then another person was was Peter Bishop, who said something at a at a uh, was it at uh, Varuna. He was teaching a conversations with writers course at Varuna. It was two thousand and sixteen, and he said, you know, writing needs to breathe. You you don't need to sort of have all this criticism and workshopping necessarily it's does it the question is does it breathe does it live mm. and that was uh, earth shattering to me mm. that's a great <laughs> so, that's an awesome quote that's that's that just blew mm. my mind by saying it it's, it's just it's interesting that you mentioned that Angela because it, it is sort of things where you go like it's you know you feel silly but it's like this sort of like light bulb moment yeah. you know what I mean like I can write I like hearing that, um, that Catherine said that in terms of that, like, sort of allowed you to kind of think, you know, be liberated and write whatever you 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 want there. Because, I mean, like, it is a very, it's not like you've kind of like, I mean, obviously you've mentioned writing other novels, but it's not like you've then written a novel which is kind of really sort of straight-laced and conventional. I mean, it's really a unique story and it's, it's, it's good in that regard and it's accomplished in that regard, but it also wouldn't necessarily mean or potentially mean that you would have faced a lot of hurdles trying to, trying to capture the voice of this of this painting yeah and an no, no, object I, I really I have not uh, I've read a, a few books in my day I love reading re reading a, a juicy book but I haven't really encountered all that many from certainly none from perspective of painting so like I'm really just glad from the the outset that you you thought I'm just going to do it I'm just going to write it somewhat what write what I know but you know just being bold enough to to push the the boundaries there Thank you. Well, the decision never was, I'm going to do something different now. It just, it did come organically. And yeah. It was just like what, yeah, I mean, you know, you can't sort of retrace all the steps of how a creation comes into being. But, yes, it was organic and it was kind of what I needed to be right. Yeah. I don't think it was dark. Like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to seem like it was, oh, I was no, thinking no. there was like dark, dark, dark board, like dart on the board type thing. I'm going to do this crazy thing. No, no, no. I, I can tell that it happened organically. I'm just glad that you were bold enough to go, yes, this is what I want to write and I'm going to yeah. do it. Yeah, no, thanks. No, I didn't think you were saying that, but yeah. um, I didn't want listeners to feel that that's what I'm saying is I sort of <laughs> sat down and thought, now I'll think up some crazy project. <laughs> um, no, but... All right, good stuff. Well, yeah. look, last question. It's a mm -hmm. it's time on it. It's an oldie but a goodie. And I again I love it because it's 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 a question I always ask, but I never get the same answer. Is what advice would you give to aspiring authors that are listening to the program, Angela, particularly about uh, writing? What advice would you would you give that you wish that you yourself got at uh, you know starting off at some junction? Uh, well, it really was the advice I got. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> so um, I would say, I mean, I answered this in a, this same question recently and uh, I think it comes back to reading. Mm. 
you know, I mean, maybe I'm old school, but I just think read, read, hmm. read, and read like a writer. I mean, ask the questions that you need to. So like get used to asking the questions that you need to ask as a writer, which I think are a little different to, or a little, yeah, a little different to just reading as a reader. Um, you know, why do, why do I like this? What is it about this voice in this book? You know, what is it about the way that character is presented? Not so true. It's a, it's, it really is true. And um, it obviously bears plentiful and succulent fruit because, I mean, I must say that I thoroughly enjoyed Night Blue Angela. I thought it was a really, Thank really, so much. A, a, it was a really unique start story. Um, yeah, I, I, I love such sort of a unique story and it's as you mentioned it happened organically and it was just something that you kind of uh, wanted to write and you you accomplished that so it was absolute pleasure reading it uh as a as a fan of, of blue poles it gave me a lot of food for thought i'm still going to be digesting and processing that over the course of the next few days but in the best way possible not not indigestion shouldn't liken that to indigestion no food for the soul food for the soul no food for the soul not too much cholesterol food for the soul but um look Bless you for writing and thank you so much for talking to me today on the Right Way podcast. Thank you so much, Sam, for your very thoughtful questions. Greatly appreciated. Thank you. So, everyone, that was Angela O'Keefe talking to me about her novel Night Blue. Really great chat there. Um, absolute joy to have Angela talking on the program about such a boldly original and imaginative work there. So, huge thanks again to Angela for appearing on the show. And thank you, listener, for listening to this particular episode. I'm obviously, as I always unfailingly do, going to put the uh, link to Transit Lounge. Transit Lounge are the people that publish, the good folks that published uh, Angela's novel. Um, they publish an incredible, uh, an incredibly wide and broad and disparate uh, stable of authors and different types of stories. I can't sing songs of their praise enough. I must say they are one of my favorite publishing houses based in Fitzroy there. So uh, Transit Lounge, if you're listening to this, bless you. Keep doing uh, some really, really good work that you're doing there for the Australian literary industry, particularly for such original stories. So I'm uh, keep a lookout for the link there, both to Transit Lounge and to listeners that are listening to this, that I'm going to put that on there so you can check out all their stuff. Thank you again, as always, to you guys for listening to these episodes, going back, listening to the catalogue there as well. You know the story, you know the jam by now. Keep listening, keep following, keep telling people about it. I'll keep doing it. I'll keep finding the good fight. I'll keep talking to cool people like Angela and many, many more in the coming weeks and months that are leading up. And uh, yeah, dare I say it, I'll keep doing my own novel writing as well, you know, because who knows what will happen in this crazy world and crazy life that we lead. But uh, in the interim, can't thank you enough for listening and can't stress enough, keep tuning in. Got a hell of a lot more episodes coming up for your listening pleasure. Take care in the interim.